0: What we found is that the best leaders tend to act as even emoters. So it's really useful to know what your base tendency is so that you can kind of correct for it in different situations. You don't need to fundamentally change who you are. So often people will say, in this new era of emotions and vulnerability, I feel like I need a personality transplant. And you don't need a personality transplant. It's more just thinking of opportunities to practice what my co author Molly and I call selective vulnerability, which is pairing a moment of openness that builds trust with a path forward. So you're both acknowledging emotions and then showing that you've thought through the situation enough to still be a stable guide for your team.
1: That was author and Humu head of comms and content, Liz Fosselin. You might know Liz from her books, you might know Liz from her work at Humu, and you might know Liz as one half of Liz and Molly. Chances are you have seen those illustrations. And in this episode, it was great to sit down with Liz talk about her career journey, her work at Humu, and her work as an author and illustrator. And we really get inside the creative process for those Liz and Molly illustrations. So we'll be right back with that conversation after a brief word from our sponsor. It's time to let go of past perceptions of HR. Amplify is a new model of agency, designed from the ground up to support business and people leaders navigate the new world of work. We do that through two platforms. Our HR executive search practice is a new model of agency that moves away from traditional search models with our flat fee structure and advisory on the front and back end to help our clients attract and retain transformational people leaders, our Amplify Accelerator is a unique platform to support continuous learning and build readiness, capability, and global networks for today's people leaders through cohorts, community, and resources to support their growth. Learn more at amplifytalent.com. Now, onto the show. Hey, everyone. The Welcome to Redefining HR Podcast. I'm your host, Lars Schmidt, and I am really excited to be back kicking off season eight of the podcast with Liz Foslein. Liz is Humu's Head of Communications and Content. She's also a best-selling author with two books, No Hard Feelings and Big Feelings. And there's so much for us to explore, so I wanna jump right into it. Uh, Liz, if you wouldn't mind, uh, I'd love to have you open with an introduction for the audience.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, So at Humu, we send nudges to employees at large organizations to help them take small steps that have a really big impact on how they feel and the people around them feel. And then that, combined with the books I've written, everything in my work is just how do we embrace emotion in a way that is effective, that helps us have more productive teams, support one another. Um, it's not an invitation to become a feelings fire hose. That's always the question I get. Like, should I just start screaming and crying? Uh, no, but um, there's definitely... Sometimes, right? Yeah, sometimes, <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. But there's a balance to strike between sharing, which builds trust and then oversharing, which, especially if you're a leader, can undermine your authority.
1: Well, there, there's a lot that I wanna get into in all of that, uh, both your role at, at Humu and also you know, your books and just your creative process, because I imagine a lot of uh, listeners are both familiar with your books uh, and also your illustrations that you do with Liz and Molly, and so I'm really excited to learn more about those. But let's kind of go back to the early days. You, you studied economics and math in college, What did you envision yourself doing at that time?
0: Yeah, so for context, my parents are both immigrants. They're very academic, they're very stoic. So I was definitely emotionally repressed and had a very strict (laughs) view of what success looks like. Um, I studied math and economics because I'm terrified of blood, so I couldn't be a doctor. So it was like, okay, well, doctor's out, so now it's lawyer or banker. Um, And that was where I thought my career was going. So I got a job as an economic consultant And it was, uh, you know, it checked all the boxes. It had like a very clear career path. I was making what I thought was a lot of money, was a lot of money, put on the Banana Republic suit every day, went into a big, tall building, (laughs) and I really hated it. The work, you know, was sort of like cleaning up the mess of the 2009 financial crisis. I didn't find the work meaningful. We were at the behest of law firms, so I would often be in the office till six, just sitting around Then the work would come in and I would start and be in the office till one. So there was very little work-life balance. There are just many things about that job. But it was shocking to me that I couldn't just power through. Like I truly burnt out. I started having migraines and had to quit with nothing else lined up. And that for me was really being forced to confront the fact that, yeah, if you don't like what you do, you can't do it for that long. It's just... It's not really sustainable, and even if you are able to muddle through, you're not going to be successful.
1: It was that kind of a turning point for you in your career, like when you when you reached that point and you were clearly burned out, and and you left. And obviously, your work since then, and certainly of late, has been more around evaluating and and and, and kind of exploring feelings at work, emotions at work, Uh, you know, your work at, at Humu with Nudges, you know, explores that as well. Like, was it, was there a moment where you kind of said, okay, like I had this dream of what I needed to be and what I should be, that was kind of probably drilled into me from a young age. Now I need to do something different and maybe maybe deconstruct some of what led me down that road to begin with.
0: Yeah. So it definitely wasn't a single moment of, ah, oh, this, is, this is what I need to do with my life. It was sort of a slow forced reckoning, um, but I very much had operated under this idea that to be professional, you don't feel, you don't fuss and you don't fail. And I was feeling, I, I had to quit my job, so I felt like I was fussing and I felt like I'd failed. Um, and I think what actually was the big awakening moment for me was that I, after I quit, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I needed health insurance, I needed some income. So as a consultant, I'd been going to the Starbucks every day as a customer to just get out of the office. And I knew that Starbucks, if you worked there part-time, would offer you benefits. So I walked into the same Starbucks and was like, you know me as a customer, do you have any barista openings? And I worked as a barista for about seven months in Chicago. And Starbucks is so thoughtful about onboarding employees. You know, it's retail, so there's high turnover. So they have to be thoughtful about how do you get someone up to speed quickly, but how do you get the team to work together? And then also, how do you create an emotional experience for customers? And that, for me, was this window into, oh, we don't need to keep emotions out of the workplace. They actually are hugely beneficial, both for things like employee experience and for Profit and making a brand that people really feel attached to. Um, And so that was when I also started looking back at my consulting role and asking myself, you know, what could I have done to make this more enjoyable or to make this work out a little longer so I didn't sort of hit the wall and crash and burn so hard? And things like going to my manager and saying, these are the aspects of work I really enjoy. Can I take on more of this work? It had never occurred to me that that was an option. Um, it was, I just was like very reactive, you know, here's the assignment. I do the assignment. I turn it in. What's the next assignment? Uh, so yeah, it was a slow process, but I think Starbucks was instrumental. And then also starting to really explore this, like, are there any actions I could have taken that I probably still (laughs) wouldn't be a consultant, but that might've made it, um, a better learning experience.
1: So in in your current role now at Humu, you know, you you were one of the very early employees coming over when Laszlo Bach Buck um, started the company. What what drew you to Humu? How how did that kind of align with your your personal and professional interests at the time?
0: Yeah, so I think the company was like 20 people, it's now about 120 uh, when I joined and at the time I was writing my first book No Hard Feelings with my co-author Molly. And we had combed through the academic literature, interviewed a lot of academics, and were starting to reach out to practitioners to see, okay, here's what the research says, what are people actually doing in the workplace? And I emailed Laszlo. I was familiar with his work at Google and honestly thought I would never get a response. And to his credit, he responded. And so I interviewed him for about an hour. And one of the things I found was that most people I interviewed had very good... High level advice, like I want people to be authentic. I want people to bring their whole self to work. Empathy is really important for leadership, which is wonderful. But my question was always it's 9 a.m., it's Tuesday, I'm a manager. What if I'm newly promoted? What if it's not? What if I work at like an investment bank? What does vulnerability look like in that moment? I have no idea. And when I asked Laszlo, he just there was so much nuance in his answer. He was like it depends on you, it depends on the culture, it depends on the people on the team, it depends on what executive's reward within that organization. And so I just so appreciated the rigor in his responses. Um I remember leaving that meeting and just thinking like whatever I need to do with this company, I think I would learn so much from this individual. Um and so we stayed in touch and when the book came out I sent him a copy and then Again, I think I got very lucky that it was this mutual like, this is really in line with what Humu was doing. So I ended up joining as one of their first nudge writers. So my first job was just writing a lot of the nudges, many of which we still send to employees.
1: Yeah, and let's, let's talk about the nudges for a moment because, uh, you know, for, for viewers and listeners that may not be familiar with Humu and nudges and kind of their role in performance and engagement, you know, maybe if you could just give an overview of like how Humu uses nudges and then if there's, if there's something maybe that surprised you about a, a particular nudge and the reaction that that would cause uh, from employees.
0: Yeah. So nudges are short science-backed suggestions. So they don't take away any choice. You don't have to act on them, but hopefully they're convincing enough that you do. Um, And they really break down big goals into mini milestones. So the goal when we're writing nudges is that it should never be unclear what to do. So even if we say like, give specific feedback, We'll then give like here's a couple sentences that you can use or phrases or frameworks to make it even easier to give very specific feedback. The way we figure out how to nudge a given individual, there's a lot of signals we take in. So what does the organization want to work on? A lot of organizations are trying to be more innovative, more inclusive. What does the individual want to work on? So you're not going to be motivated to act on the nudge if it has no personal relevance to you. And then what is the team and the manager working on? And there's these big high-level themes, but there's usually actions, almost always actions, that actually touch on all three of those themes. So let's say the organization wants to be innovative, the individual wants to learn to speak up more in meetings, and the team is working on being inclusive, we might send a nudge to the manager that's like, ask everyone to run an experiment that week, and then come to the next team meeting and share what they did. So now everyone gets a chance to speak up, they're working on experimentation, And it's building inclusivity because we're getting okay with making mistakes and like we're all on the same playing field. Um, What surprised me, I think, is actually how relatively infrequent you can nudge people and still see it have a big effect. So people tend to be really surprised when they hear that we send nudges about once a week. So it's not this barrage of nags or notifications. It's really one small step per week, and we have tested this in settings like call centers where there's very clear success metrics. So productivity is measured by first call resolution rate, net promoter score, and we see that people we nudge, again, only once per week, their scores actually tend to go up over time um, much more significantly than people who are not nudged. And again, it's not this onslaught (laughs) of recommendations. It's just doing one little thing that then has this really big compounding impact over time.
1: And I want to go back to, I'm, I'm so curious to get into your writing work. We're going to do that next, but I have one more question just about uh, something you said earlier around vulnerability and the, you know, your kind of research on vulnerability and and obviously interviewing people and getting different perspectives on um, how they could show up because I, I think vulnerability is a term that um, certainly over the last couple of years in leadership, we, we've used a lot more. Um, to describe leadership traits, and you know, while I, I think there's definitely merit in that, I think that you know there, there's there's a balance where on some side, you know, people who by their n- normal kind of nature of how they operate, they do tend to be more private, um, you know, less open, and they shouldn't necessarily feel forced to share things if it's not natural and comfortable to them. Um, and then on the other side, you may have people who are very comfortable being an open book and sharing everything. And I'm curious, like from your research, from a leadership perspective, what are your thoughts? Is is there is there a right level of vulnerability, optimal level? I'd love to get your perspective on that.
0: Yeah, it's a great question that I get a lot. Um, and there's, fundamentally, there's not good or bad. So um, we found that there's a spectrum. And so on one end of the spectrum is under emoters, which you identified as people who are just not going to share as much. And then there's over that have no poker face, You know what they're feeling and what we found is that the best leaders tend to act as even emoters so it's really useful to know what your base tendency is so that you can kind of correct for it in different situations you don't need to fundamentally change who you are. So often people will say, in this new era of emotions and vulnerability, I feel like I need a personality transplant. And you don't need a personality <laughs> transplant. It's more just thinking of opportunities to practice what my co-author Molly and I call selective vulnerability, which is pairing a moment of openness that builds trust with a path forward. So you're both acknowledging emotions and then showing that you've thought through the situation enough to still be a stable guide for your team. Example might be if there's a round of layoffs and you have to communicate that to the people, you know, who are still at the company. If you're an under-motor, your tendency might be just to not talk about it or just to be like, "Layoffs were announced this morning. You're all fine. Let's move on." If you're an over-motor, you might just be like completely distracted for the whole day. But the most effective leaders come into the meeting and say, this is really hard and it's hard for me to communicate this. This is, I'm feeling this too. I know there's a lot of uncertainty. My door is always open. Here are resources. Here's what I'm planning to do over the next three months to make sure that this doesn't happen again and that we're rallying together as a team and that you all feel secure. Um, And so again, it's this balance of speaking to emotions without getting overly emotional, and then charting a path
1: forward. Traditional HR and learning systems are largely rooted in legacy mindsets and practices. They're not equipped to keep pace with the dynamic times we've experienced since the events of 2020 and beyond. That's why I launched the Amplify Accelerator. The Amplify Accelerator is a platform for connecting, developing and supporting the next generation of people leaders. Designed to support continuous learning and build capabilities and connections The accelerator helps modern people leaders build the necessary skills to successfully navigate this new world of work. The flagship of the Amplify Accelerator is the cohort program. These peer-based learning courses are designed to help you become a more confident people leader, armed with a new global peer community and a toolkit full of actionable advice, resources, templates, and more. Cohort students engage in a mix of synchronous and asynchronous learning designed to fit into the schedules of today's people leaders. You'll also learn from world-class guest instructors, including Katie Burke, Caitlin Holloway, Pat Waters, Claude Silver, AJ Thomas, Tiffany Stevenson, and so many more. Ready to invest in yourself? Learn more at amplifytalent.com slash cohorts. Yeah, I mean, I really like that That even approach. And I think in particular, you know, a lot of the uh, viewers and listeners of the podcast are in HR and people operations. And I mean, they've been on the front lines of seismic event after seismic event after seismic event over the last uh, several years where they have had to play that role and that not just through layoffs, but external circumstances, internal circumstances, global, you know, socioeconomics, you know, there's so many different things that have been happening in our world that they uh, are often on the front lines of. And so I think that that advice is really helpful. Um, Let's talk about your books, because I, I, you know, for for viewers and, and listeners, I'm sure many of them have read your books. Um, I'm certainly, whether they know it or not, all of them have seen your illustrations uh, before. And I want to kind of, you know, get back. You mentioned your writing partner Molly. Um, how did the two of you connect? How did you kind of come together on this idea when you started working on your first book together?
0: Yeah, so I I'd say it was maybe my mid twenties. I moved to New York from San Francisco. And I had this admittedly very stereotypical view of New Yorkers that everyone was going to be abrasive. (laughs) I was going to be this Californian that just hit, you know, hit the sidewalk and everyone would trample over me. Um, So I, in a, in a panic called all my friends and said, can you set me up on friend dates with people, you know, in New York? And Molly was one of those first friend dates and she and I are both introverts We both have very rigorous sleep routines, so like eye mask, fan, white noise machine, earplugs, we're doing it all. Um, So we kind of bonded over that, but then had had very similar early career experiences where we got the job that we worked really hard for and then found that we didn't really like it or didn't want it or wanted to do something different. Um, And at the time, I was doing illustration work on the side. She was writing articles and so we decided to just write something together about being introverts in an extroverted workplace. And then that first article got a lot of traction. And eventually, um, I had been talking to a book agent and then it was just so easy to work with Molly that we were exploring what would be a topic for a heavier book. And Susan Kane had written quiet, which is all about introverts. So we were like, she has done an excellent job on that. So we need to come up with something different. And realized that the core of everything we had talked about was just emotions at work, which was something that was starting to be talked about more, but still there was a lot of stigma around it, a lot of questions that we had. So we set out to write the book that we wish we had been given when we entered the workplace.
1: Yeah. You know, so when you went down that path, and obviously uh, you know working the book together, I imagine doing a, a tremendous amount of, of research and, and interviews. Um, did you what maybe surprised you the most as you really started to kind of go deep um, in in your research for the book on the intersection of emotions and work? Were, were, were there certain things that maybe you kind of always held to be true and in your research found actually were very different?
0: Yeah, there's one study in particular that still sticks out in my mind. So again, I studied math and economics in college. and junior year was I was very set on at one point becoming an investment banker. And I just assumed that there were some work cultures where like, you know, the managing director threw coffee against the wall and slammed the notebook on the table. And that was just what culture looked like and what you had to do to be successful in that environment. And there's a study that looks at hedge fund managers, and they actually found that hedge fund managers who are throwing the coffee against the wall, slamming the notebook on the table, their teams actually there have much lower returns on investments then the teams of managers who are supportive, encouraging people to ask questions, making it okay to admit mistakes. So that to me was different. Um, cause I thought like, of course you could, like Google cares about emotions cause there's a ball pit in the lobby, but like Goldman Sachs, I don't know if it really works there. And it does, so it actually does make <laughs> a difference. And this shows up too, you know, among firefighters and hospitals. Um, so I, I think, Something that I hadn't even really consciously thought about was that this is the things we write about hold true in every single kind of environment. The exact ways that they show up might look a little different, but fundamentally people are motivated by being treated well.
1: And I'd love to learn more about kind of your Molly's creative process. Um, you know, from a, you know, e- even, you know, the books are fantastic and I think I my gateway to the books were your illustrations. Um, And it felt like, you know, again, your, your handle, uh, Liz and Molly on Instagram, and obviously those get shared out all over social media. But I felt like there was this, you had this ability to connect the, uh, you know, the, the illustration, the, the words of framing to the moments that we were experiencing uh, and, and I say moments broadly as as society, but uh, particularly as it relates to, you know, the workforce uh, and employees. And I think a lot of that maybe I just, I'm more attuned to even like the feelings of HR because oftentimes we're on the front lines of all of these things, but they just felt like time after time again, I would, I would see it and it would link to this moment and this collective experience that we were feeling. And I think that's why it resonated so much, especially in the field of HR, and I would love to know, like, how does how do one of those illustrations come to be? What is the process of like, where do the ideas come from? Are they led first with you know words and then illustrations to match, or vice versa, or is it collaborative? Like, I'd really love to go deep in the creative process of how this come to be.
0: Yeah, so I do the illustrations, and then Molly and I partner on the writing, so on the book writing. And I think the illustrations are essentially they definitely started out and still continue to be my therapy. Um, You know, one thing as a manager, and I've also what I've heard from a lot of people in HR is this, someone described it as this concept of burnout, burnout, where they say I'm having to take care of everyone else while going through everything that they're going through. And so it's this added layer of exhaustion and emotional labor. um, And that, yeah, I think if I weren't, Doing that myself, I don't think that I would really have clued into that. And that's shown up in some illustrations. The specific process is usually it does start with words. So someone will like burnout, burnout, or someone will be like, I just had a really people pleasing week. And then it's usually just themes that I hear that I'm feeling a lot that other people are articulating. And then on weekends, I have um, like a Google Drive with lots of different visuals, like stop signs, the Mona Lisa, Sisyphus pushing the you know the big rock up the hill and then I'll start to be like okay here's kind of the words that I'm hearing people say or the themes and then which of these visuals make the most sense as a way to represent that and and then it then it's I don't know it's kind of like my brain does stuff and (laughs) but that's that's like the structure that I have in place around it
1: yeah, I mean, it's so interesting to hear how they come together. So I appreciate that. And, you know, originally I want to ask you if you had a favorite illustration. I'm not going to do that because that's not fair. <laughs> um, but I will ask, like, do you know, I know a lot of these, uh, the illustrations come from a place of personal resonance, you know, with you, either through, you know, direct feelings and experiences you're having or those that you're exposed to in your work from your you know friends and community. Um, is there a particular illustration that Uh, that that you have just a a deeper kind of emotional connection to that when you look back on it even now, it maybe takes you back to that time where you can kind of relive what you were experiencing when you created it.
0: Yeah. um, The one that pops into my head is this Venn diagram. So it's three circles and it basically has different combinations of, oh my God. So it says like, oh my, my God. God, oh God. And then in the very middle, it says, oh my God. Um, And I had, and I remember that one I created, I think it was in the summer of 2020. And it was, I feel like now this is just the new normal, but it just had felt like the news was, it was like an onslaught of upsetting headlines. It was COVID, people not caring about COVID, George Floyd, protests, like, I don't even remember everything that was in the news, but it really felt like every single day I would just open my computer and it, and it was like, oh my god, Um, and that one, yeah, I think the, the kind of sad part about it is that I've just seen people continue to share that. And so it's just like, okay, this is, it wasn't just a moment in time. I mean it was a moment in time, but then it feels like that's been the sentiment that we've been living through for years now.
1: Since, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's uh it's definitely an evergreen um, you know, illustration, unfortunately. And I mean, we're here we are, we're recording this One week, uh, less than one week, actually, after the Supreme Court uh, announcement essentially revoked uh, the ruling on Roe versus Wade and stripped reproductive freedoms um, for millions of Americans. And, you know, we're still very much in that raw, emotionally charged period after that. And I say period, this is not something that I imagine is gonna be kind of time-bound. Um, and there's a lot of people that are fearful uh, and still dealing with uh, the emotions from you know, uh, disbelief to rage and everything in between of that decision and many others that are fearful of, of the precedent that this may set from a legal perspective on the further erosion of freedoms. And so, you know, I'm curious if there, if, you know, even when this runs, we'll see, as you mentioned, evergreen post before, we'll see what happens between now and then uh, in in terms of other other moments that are going to be causing, um, you know, pain uh, in in many of our employees. If managers are listening, and I think most, you know, good managers are gonna wanna be creating an environment where they're giving their employees um, space to grieve, support, uh, all the things they necessary to carry those heightened and raw emotions into the workplace, which you know many of us are doing right now. What can they do to create an environment that is um, you know more uh, more accepting, more accommodating, more supportive for employees who are are going through kind of heightened uh, uh, you know emotional reactions to external events
0: yeah it's a it's a great question, so I think often there's a tendency to not say anything because it's like I don't have the answers. I don't you know know exactly what I can do as a leader to immediately support my team given these huge structural changes um, but I think the first thing is definitely just not pretending like it's business as usual so sort of getting clear on your own values as a leader, and then also your organization's policies, um, especially in the Roe v. Wade decision, a lot of organizations have added to their benefits or changed their benefits. Um, So I think it's it's saying something, but then striking a balance between creating space for people to talk if they want to, but also respecting that people are going to have very different reactions. So I felt this actually when the ruling first came out, um, and I went on my company Slack, and I love, like, who moves very socially active. People are, you know, people feel very safe speaking, and I love that. And then I did have this initial moment of, like, I just want one hour where I don't even have to think about this. Like, I kind of just want to be able to escape into my work for an hour. Um, and so, and, you know, and that's many people will have that reaction. So I think it's saying something like in a meeting or sending out an email and saying, like, hey, here's what happened. I know a lot of you are going to have strong reactions. I'm feeling it too. My door is always open. Please let me know how I can support you. So again, you're creating space for people to need different things. Some might want to know, is there going to be a conversation? Can I join an employee resource group discussion? Some people might say, I just want to do heads down work this afternoon and not talk about it and not answer emails and just tune everything out for a little bit. Um, so I think it's, It's communicating, acknowledging the emotions in the room, making it clear that you're there to support people, making it clear how they can reach out and get that support, but also not putting them on the spot or forcing everyone to say something right away. Because I think in the wake of these events where we do have these very, very heightened intense emotions, a lot of people aren't going to know what to say yet or just have like a different reaction than the other people on their team. And that that needs to be okay too. Like people grieve in different ways, people get upset in different ways. um, And so there should be space to accommodate that.
1: Well, Liz, I really appreciate you um, walking us through your background, your work at Humu, your your editorial work, um, and just your creative process. I really appreciate you making time to share that um, with me. And for for audiences, uh, the readers and listeners that uh, that want to order a copy of either of your books, connect with you on social. You know, what is the best way for them to connect with you after the show?
0: Yeah, I think the easiest is just to go to Liz and Molly, so L I Z. And then Molly is M-O-L-L-I-E, so slightly different uh, spelling than Y. Um, Lizamolly.com, we have assessments on there, links to all our social presences. And then to learn more about nudges, it's just Humu, H-U-M-U.com.
1: Well, Liz, thank you so much for making time to join me on the podcast. Uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, I continue to look forward to more of your work.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me and for making space for these conversations.
1: Thanks for tuning into this episode of Redefining HR. For more information on the podcast, past episodes, future guests, the Redefining HR book, or free resources, be sure to check out redefininghr.com. And if you dig this podcast, why don't you share it with your CEO, your executive team, and your friends to help them discover what Redefining HR is all about. If you really dig this podcast, I'd love for you to leave a review on whatever podcast delivery vehicle your ears prefer. See you next week.